the hydrogen value chain is vast. That's not the point. The point of hydrogen energy storage is not to be a battery. Hydrogen ultimately is a secondary energy resource. It's an energy carrier. And when you're talking about very long duration, very high power types of energy storage applications, hydrogen energy storage is pretty hard to beat. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking about the many colors of hydrogen. We're starting to hear a lot more about carbon-free hydrogen as a solution for everything from transportation to power plants. It's as versatile in its uses as it is in options to make it. No one can say when, but over the years, the technologies to make hydrogen have been assigned colors, as simple ways to refer to them. Only two of these colors, brown and black hydrogen, actually produce carbon. But what has made my guess a little cranky is the fact that only one of these carbon-free hydrogen solutions is called green hydrogen, water electrolysis for renewable energy. That's one of the lines where engineering and marketing really butt heads. Marketing wants something cute and simple, and engineers want precision. Back when I was executive director for Carbon Capture Association in Texas, I joked that environmental groups groups ran circles around trade associations like ours in the names alone. Environmental groups were called Public Citizen and Environmental Defense. My group was called the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas. We weren't even accurately a foundation, but we had to have a name that was specifically everything we did even the technology part. Why didn't we call ourselves the Clean Skies Coalition? It's kind of funny that in this hydrogen discussion, it's those on the right brain side of the aisle that are calling for simplicity. Just make all the carbon-free hydrogen green and the rest something else. I doubt this podcast will put an end to it, but what we do know is that these clean colors have a big future for hydrogen. My guests today are Jonathan Cristiani from Black & Veatch, Luis DePavia from New Scale Power, and Christmas Robian from Monolith Corporation. They joined me last March for a panel on, yes, the many colors of hydrogen for the UNC Clean Tech Conference in Chapel Hill. The conference planners and I thought this would be a really cute concept, but the second I discussed this with the panelists, the color idea was dead on the launch pad. So too was a suggestion that we all wear corresponding colored outfits. You can judge if I was able to successfully navigate away from the central premise during the panel. One of the themes we discussed at length was the commerciability of these hydrogen technologies. Be sure to check out the slides linked on the show notes for today's episode. What we're finding is that many of these hydrogen technologies are ready to go. We just need a market plan to go behind them. The three technologies or colors we discussed today are renewable hydrogen, green, hydrogen pyrolysis, or turquoise, and nuclear hydrogen, red, purple, pink, depending on the conversion method. You'll also hear the use of the acronym SMR a few times. Talk about bringing worlds together. New Scale's nuclear technology is called a small modular reactor, but the most common form of hydrogen production today is called steam methane reforming. I think you'll be able to tell the difference. I hope you enjoy my conversation on the many colors of hydrogen from UNC Cleantech. All right, everybody. Welcome to 
the many colors of hydrogen here at UNC Cleantech. I'm your host, Jay Downhower, host of the EnergyCast podcast. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary last Friday, so it's way too long to be doing a podcast. While I cover the gamut of energy issues on the show, I haven't done that many episodes on hydrogen and the potential future it has for us, but it looks to me like hydrogen is about to see its moment, right? Last September, the Department of Energy announced a $7 billion hydrogen roadmap with the goal of producing 10 million metric tons of clean carbon-free hydrogen annually by 2030, 20 by 2040, and 50 by 2050. It should be noted that we currently produce about 0 million metric tons of clean hydrogen, but calculations show that 50 million tons that we're hoping to get by 2050 could drop U.S. carbon emissions 10% relative to the 2005 benchmark that we always hear about. These panelists today are here to talk about some of these clean hydrogen solutions, some of the many colors of hydrogen, right? And over the past few years, these solutions have been developed the color designations to help the public understand them better. It's kind of a rough definition, but I think after talking to some of the panelists, we're probably not going to talk about colors too much. We're going to really get into the technology, but just so we don't get sued for not advertising correctly, I'm going to go ahead and give you the colors, what they mean. I don't know if your parents ever read the Mr. Men book, but I thought that might be a good example here. So real quickly, green hydrogen using renewable energy. Blue is fossil fuels, but if you capture the carbon, turquoise, one of our guests here is going to explain that a little bit further. Pyrolysis and you're not even creating CO2. The carbon comes out as a solid. Then you've got brown, which is coal, and fossil fuels with no CO2 capture. So basically that's coal and gas. And then at the bottom three there, you have our nuclear family. Hybrid of electricity and heat, only electricity, which is pink, and then red is basically separating with heat. And then of course, the very rare white naturally occurring H2. We threw that in as well. That gets the white hydrogen designation. Oh, by the way, we were talking about what is clean hydrogen. I think everything probably counts except for the brown and the gray. They're the ones who make CO2 at the end. Everybody else is not, so everyone else is probably on the happy side of the ledger. So let's hear more about some of these clean options here, huh? So what we'll do is we'll introduce our three guests. They'll speak and kind of give an outline of what they're doing with their technology, and then we're going to get into a lot of Q&A. So please have all your questions handy. I'm basically going to toss out to the audience as soon as we get done with the presentation. I want to hear your questions first. I have a few backup questions in case we have any lull in the conversation, but we want this to be pretty freewheeling. I think it's going to be. We've got some great guests here today. So our three panelists are Jonathan Cristiani. He's the Bioenergy and Hydrogen Technology Manager at Black & Veatch. He represents our renewable, our green character here. Luis Sapavia, he's the Innovation Manager for New Scale Power. You may have heard of them. They have their SMR, Small Modular Reactor Technology. He's representing purple, pink, and red. So he gets to do combined duty there. And then Chris Masrobian, Senior Director of Business Development for Monolith Corporation, and he is going to be talking about the turquoise technology, which I don't think many of us have heard before. Here we go, John. Well, thanks guys for having me. It's great to be back at UNC. I wanted to start out by providing maybe some reference with respect to technology readiness. I know that a lot of you at the university often work in technology and research and development, and I thought it was important to help kind of gauge where some of these different technologies are with respect to TRLs. So these were created by NASA back in the 60s. Actually, a lot of them applied to hydrogen-type technologies at the time. Fuel cells, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's a form of power generation using hydrogen as a fuel. And where we want to kind of focus today is less on the early stage where y'all are typically at, advancing newer technologies, and more on the so-called development, also known as the valley of death, getting things from academia into commercial industry. And where I work primarily here in the TRL, 8, 9 
space. So you'll hear us use TRLs a bit here and there. All you got to know is one is very early stage, nine is fully commercialized. The hydrogen value chain is vast. Jay did a great job kind of framing it up with respect to this is dirty hydrogen or <laughs> carbon intensive hydrogen. And this is kind of the different fields of so-called low carbon hydrogen. And this is about as simply as my company has been able to represent this value chain. So when we talk about a value chain, we're talking soup to nuts, feedstocks, processes, and products. The great thing about hydrogen, why everybody is so interested in it, is its versatility here on the right-hand side of the chart. We're talking about we can use it as an energy carrier, similar to what we do with electricity. We can use it as a vehicle fuel and fuel cell vehicles or burn it directly in power plants in place of natural gas. We can use it to heat our homes, and we can even use it to create other chemicals to decarbonize other industries, ammonia, methanol, sustainable aviation fuels. All these different derivatives are kind of the basis for why we're so excited about hydrogen holistically. And there's been a lot of talk in the media the past few years for whatever ungodly reason with respect to green hydrogen, so hydrogen produced by water electrolysis. It's where we're taking all this renewable energy that we're generating, turning it into a chemical, and then using it in all the different ways that I just talked about. One of the reasons I beat poor Jay up so bad before we had the powwow today is because I care nothing about, as an engineer, as a manager in an engineering organization, I care nothing about colors, right? Because there's 1,500 different definitions for colors. It's an overly simplistic way of dumbing things down when y'all are way too smart to be kowtowed in that manner. What we're really talking about is carbon intensity, okay? So a given amount of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions associated with a unit mass of hydrogen production. And if we think about it in terms of energy, you can kind of see some of the relative frame up when we talk about hydrogen as an energy resource here. So coal being one of the more carbon intensive things, when we start getting into gas, there's some bandwidth there depending on fugitive methane. As we start getting into the blue, the turquoise, we're talking pretty darn close to zero. Maybe electrolysis is at zero, depending on the carbon intensity of the electricity that's used. And I'm a bioenergy guy, as it says right up front in my name, so obviously when we want to talk about negative carbon intense hydrogen, we're talking about biogas and cow poop and all that great stuff. So one of the ways that we think about hydrogen as a means of energy storage is shifting the availability of renewable energy seasonally. Okay, so it snows a whole bunch out west, you know, Lake Tahoe, and then it's like all this hydropower. And so how do I take that hydropower that's available in the spring and make it available in the fall when it's like dry as what? out there. Or better yet, how do I take all my solar energy that's in abundance that I can't put on the grid during the summer and then shift that to the winter to be able to utilize that renewable energy? And one way of doing that is to store hydrogen underground like we do natural gas, like we do lots of different resources. So salt caverns are the tried and true gold standard of geophysical storage. It's pretty cheap, pretty similar to storing oil and gas reservoirs. There's a lot of different things going on out there. I don't want to go too deep into it because I'm really just teeing up the project that I'm here to talk about. So we stored our hydrogen. We produced it by electrolysis. It's been stored seasonally. Now we resurrect it from the depths. Let's take it and let's fire it in place of natural gas in a power plant. 
So what are the challenges with that? Well, it's lighter than natural gas. Well, it's more flammable. Flashback, combustion stability. The project I want to talk about is ACES. So ACES is the first of a kind hydrogen energy storage project in the world. It's premier. Black & Beach, my company, is the full wrap engineering procurement contractor for it. It's effectively 220 megawatts of electrolyzers where we're producing hydrogen using a high voltage DC transmission line, storing it underground in salt caverns, and then using it basically as a 300 gigawatt hour battery. So it's a pretty cool project. We're excited to be involved. It's easily currently the world's largest hydrogen hub. So really appreciate you guys inviting me out today. Thanks for giving me a few extra minutes. <laughs> Anytime, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. And we'll be talking a little bit more about ACEs in just a little bit. All right. So nuclear, as you saw, had three colors to it, pink, purple, and red. And no better company right now that's hotter than New Scale as far as nuclear and SMRs. And they hit a big milestone. What was it? Uh, last month. You can talk about that, Louis. But really excited to have New Scale. These guys are awesome. Louis, thank you for coming out. Well, thank you, Jay. I'm glad to be here at UNC. Very interesting topic. Please don't hesitate to ask any questions. I know you're all here because you want to learn something you didn't know before. New scale. I know we don't make weight scales. <laughs> we make nuclear power plants. It is the first and the only small nuclear reactor that has been certified by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or the NRC. What it really means is that to operate a nuclear power plant in the United States, it has to be approved by this expert body of the government, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to make sure every single safety item is passed. Similar to whenever they certify an airplane, like the 777 in Boeing, that's a huge step. So what is this modular reactor? Have you seen these big nuclear power plants that have a big dome, concrete? Well, New Scale does that, but it does it in a miniature size. And this is different because all the nuclear power plants that have been built around the world have the nuclear reactor built at the same time that the reactor building is constructed. So imagine that you're building a house and at the same time they're building the furniture in your house. New Scale, the furniture has been built and then you saved an incredible amount of time by decoupling these two systems. Plus, now you can build the modules in a manufacturing place where they can make many, many of them, save cost, do it more systematically, and doing it in the location where you have all the expertise as opposed to do it in the field with the construction going on. Now, let's talk about hydrogen, right? Because I'm talking about nuclear plants. A nuclear plant generates heat. Essentially, is a boiler. Fission and heats up the water. That water generates steam. The steam moves a turbine. The turbine moves a generator, and then you have electricity. If you put that electricity into an electrolyzer, so you put water, you put electricity, and then you can generate hydrogen with nuclear power. Same thought about the colors. I just thought it would be much better if we put a number, even better, a multi-dimensional number. When I pick something from the supermarket, it says how many calories it has and how much sugar. So here I would would like to know what are the carbon dioxide emissions per kilowatt hour. If you go down the path, you use natural gas that has a smaller carbon emission footprint. Then you go into the renewables, let's say hydropower, wind, nuclear, and wind offshore. So nuclear has 12 grams, very little. And this is the life cycle, all the carbon that gets used to manufacture the fuel, the plant, and so on. The next number is land use, because we're talking about the environment. 
For wind, it takes about 44.7 acres per megawatt. Solar panels, 6.1. And with new scale, 0.04 acres per megawatt. Then all the fuel that you use for 60 years fits in 0.8 acres. So I would say this is conveniently a good way to classify the footprint for different power supplies for hydrogen, particularly nuclear. And probably I already exceeded my time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Luis. New scale, them getting that final permit, the NRC permit, and I think Luis and I were kind of joking around because there have been announcements over the years they got the permit, but it wasn't the final, final permit. Well, the final, final permit came the end of February. Luis was talking about his boss. I was at PowerGen in Orlando. He was speaking as a keynote speaker in front of an arena, and he was happy to announce that they had just gotten their final approval that day. And he like looked down at his phone. It was really a big deal. I had interviewed one of their people about two years ago, and they told me it was like tens of thousands of pages of paperwork and hundreds of millions of dollars and everything. And how many designs are at NRC? Only seven reactors are permitted to be built in the U.S. that have been certified by the NRC. Seven reactors. You know how many people have walked on the surface of the moon? Twelve. <laughs> so that'll give you a good idea. The next guest, I'm really excited to hear about turquoise, especially because I used to work in carbon capture and storage, but Chris has a way to not have to make CO2. So let's hear about it, Chris. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks everyone for staying through the end of the day for the last session. So I'm Chris Mithrobian. My background's actually on the technology side, always taking ideas from lab to first commercial system. I joined Monolith back at the very beginning, like one of the first of 10 employees, really thinking about the nuts and bolts of our core technology and designing that. And so I went all the way up to director of technology about two years ago. And rather than developing our technology, I think more about deploying our technology as director of business development. How do I grow the company through partnership and project opportunities? So we say turquoise hydrogen, but I already say I'm not a fan of the color system because that sounds very strange. But this is kind of like monolith in a snapshot. Obviously our inputs, carbon-free electricity. So the carbon intensity, as we've talked about, very important for inputs and then we have natural gas really any hydrocarbon would work but today very widely abundant cheap natural gas here in the US so that's what we're going to use and it can be renewable or it can be off gases from other processes that would be otherwise wastes I like to call it sometimes the carburetor of systems and then it goes through our technology again methane process is a bit of a misnomer really any hydrocarbon can go through but we've developed that and I'll show you some more slides on our facilities over the years and then your outputs are really simple you've broken into its two main parts carbon and hydrogen Carbon black, I'll talk a little bit about that. That is a very old nanoparticle. It's been around for a hundred years. It goes into inks, rubbers, dyes, plastics. The general rule of thumb is if it's not leather and black, it has carbon black. So your phones with the plastics, there's different grades that give it conductive properties. This whiteboard has carbon black to give it a specific tone of color. But most of the market is your tires. About 70% of the carbon black market is tires. About a third of your tire is carbon black. So it's what makes your tire last 30,000 miles instead of 5,000 miles. It's a very important part of the material. At the nano scale, it's got all these kind of shapes and we can control those properties so that when you mix it into these different plastics and rubbers, it gives it those either strong sidewalls or it can make your tread wear really slowly. And so it's been really exciting to work on that. It's been around 100 years. The traditional way today, the leading process is a partial combustion. So it's very dirty. So it's about 2.3 tons of CO2 for every ton of carbon black produced. The other product that we produce is hydrogen. And I say co-product, one's not more important than the other for here at Monolith. Both are significant 
to our bottom line. But because we're making that carbon black, we're not making CO2. We have no oxygen in our process. And so you can't make carbon dioxide. And so it's therefore a very low intensity carbon hydrogen. And I like to separate sometimes the words of carbon to me is a solid product I sell and carbon dioxide is the emissions. Sometimes those words get confused and sometimes I make that mistake too. So that's monolith process. So just some other comments, some methane process. There are other companies doing this, but when you look at taking hydrogen from a methane molecule, you need one seventh the amount of energy to take hydrogen off than you do take hydrogen off from water. Well, that's just basic thermodynamics. You can't get around that. And so you can have a lot less energy to produce the same amount of hydrogen from pyrolysis unit than you can electrolysis unit. And that's just born in our operational kind of parameters, so to speak. Another thing is no CO2, so you don't need any geology. So if you compare against blue hydrogen where you have an SMR and you're trying to capture that carbon dioxide and bury that under the ground for hundreds of years, that's not the case with our facility. There's no geology required to bury that under the ground. And there are countries and continents in this world that don't have that as an option. And so we provide that flexibility in deployment and flexibility in permitting as well. It's uh, very easy in that regards. It's also the only technology that's not producing hydrogen from water. Electrolysis, 100% of that hydrogen comes from water. Steam methane reforming, that's 95% of the industry's way of producing hydrogen today, comes 50%-ish from water. Our process is 100% from the hydrocarbon gas. And then finally, you're making a valuable co-product. And when it comes to economics and it comes to providing these materials at cost-effective market values, that's what we're doing by making two products. And so it's a really great story from methane paralysis. And I think I'll talk a little bit more about the specific projects. But first, we were talking TRL, so I like to call this the four orders of methane process here at Monolith. Me and many others here at the company have had a pretty awesome job on the engineering side working across all four. And so I've had my hands literally in all four of these first four, from Lab 1, which is a laboratory scale furnace that we were working with in a partnership in the early days, to the Mimperi Tech facility. This is actually a partnership we have with a university in France, Mimperi Tech. Uh, Laurent Fauchery is the lead researcher there, and we've been working very closely with him over a decade now. Then you have Seaport 1. This was actually our first facility built as a company. And then it was built on the edge of the San Francisco Bay Area in Redwood City. So like right behind that, if you can't quite see it in this picture, there's a bird sanctuary. We were able to permit and build that in less than a year. And that just comes down to the cleanness of our technology. And we operated that for four years and showed all the metrics we needed to really build Olive Creek One. That's the last scale step of our technology. And so what you're seeing there, and I'll show more on the next slide, is one unit producing about you know, 550 kilograms per hour of hydrogen today. Very proud to see those orders. And then after that, now that's the efficient size and scale. You're going to replicate that at the same site 12 times. And so that's actual facility. That's Olive Creek One, built in June 2020, going through the nice paces there and really proud. We're now selling product to our customers out of that facility. And you'll see more announcements along the likes with Goodyear and Michelin and other customers that we've had and will continue to have. And we've also gone through a, quite a rigorous diligence process with the Department of Energy's loan program office. So we have received a $1 billion conditional loan to expand that facility 12 more times at that same site. And that's what Olive Creek 2 is, really phase one and phase two. So what we'll be doing there is producing about 55 to 60 kilotons per year of hydrogen. We're going to use all that hydrogen into making anhydrous ammonia. So that is basically we're going to take nitrogen out of the air, combine that with our hydrogen molecule, 
and make fertilizer. As you can see, we're 20 minutes south of Lincoln, Nebraska, which is predominantly cornfields, and they need anhydrous ammonia. It's very much imported into that region. We will provide that in a clean way. That facility alone will prevent about 1 million tons of CO2 from entering the atmosphere versus other methods of producing those carbon black and ammonia. So huge reduction there. So hopefully you get a sense of methane process is not a lab scale system. This is real. It's being done at a large scale and excited to answer questions. And thank you again for having me. I'm sold. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Thank you, all of our panelists. I'm going to ask one question of each of my panelists, and then it's just going to be let fly from the audience here. My first question, Chris, you just came off. We got a lot of young people here. We've got a few future entrepreneurs here. I want to talk about the marketability of this commodity that you're creating and a little bit of personal experience. So back in Texas, I represented a group that was doing carbon capture and storage. So you basically would take CO2 off a coal plant. What would you do with it? There was one company, for instance, that would take the CO2 off a coal plant and combine it to make baking soda. And they actually went so far as this baking soda from <laughs> a lignite coal plant, they baked chocolate chip cookies for it. And my understanding is the cookies were actually pretty good. But the bigger issue, though, is the world doesn't need that much baking soda for all the CO2 that coal plants can produce. You guys are making something carbon black. Sounds like it's everywhere, right? Sounds like it's almost an inexhaustible amount of demand. So is there an inexhaustible? amount of demand for the by-the-product that you're producing and what kind of went into those business decisions, right, to arrive at something like that? Absolutely. Great question. So carbon black market. It's about 12 million metric tons, so a lot of carbon is needed for the carbon black market. If you were to make all of the world's carbon black through methane process with monolith technology, you would still only satisfy about 2% of the hydrogen market. So big is a relative term. Now that is still 100 plants of monolith facility. It's a gigantic runway. It would be a major player in the hydrogen market at that size and scale. So it's nothing to say it's small, just it's still a small part. It's not the full fix. But carbon black isn't the only product we can make. We are making a very high purity carbon. We spend a lot of time thinking about how can we control that product to make different outcomes. And we targeted carbon black because of a nice balance between a large market and significant price. And you need to have those baseline economics in that project. So when I joined in the company and the whole time through, we've always been talking about what does that commercial scale deployment look like and how do we underpin competitive economics there? And that comes through having a high value carbon product. But like I said, if I had a nice plot, it's called the performance curve. Carbon black actually sits almost right in the middle between volume and price. And it's a log scale. So as you continue to go down that performance curve, you're giving up on some of the performance requirements of that material in exchange for 10x in volume of the market. And you're dropping in price as you go down. But but the world needs these materials, graphite, batteries. You'll need to find ways to make materials that go into this, whether they're conductive. You keep going down that line and you'll get to larger things. You have coke, a huge area of emissions and things that need to be replaced and decarbonized. And you keep going, you get to cements and things of that nature where the aggregate and actually materials that you can put in can actually enhance and reduce the other emission emitting parts of cement. So we spend a lot of time taking car black and putting into rubber and making that rubber perform better? Why not cement? Why not asphalt? And these are actually areas that we're thinking and working on. And then if you keep going down that line, you get to what's called soil enhancements. So this is where you can put carbon into things. Biochar is a very good example. Okay, that is an exhaustible <laughs> area, which you have to also look at how do you value that as well. And so there's a huge range of things that we can target in carbon black today 
that lifts our projects and gets us that huge greater than 90% reduction in emissions, which is pipeline materials, pipeline natural gas. And then we can continue to walk that line and expand. Yeah. You know, another thing is, is that when you're starting out and you have such a great idea like this, you could almost have too many potential customers, you know, so you really have to be a little bit judicious about where you want to go, right? Focus is the most important when you're a young startup. That's right. Luis, on New Scales Power Play, the SMR that you're using, it's a 77. And the way your permit works is that you've got a configuration for essentially a 12 pack, a six pack and a four pack, right? At one location. And I've heard New Scale speak and I've heard New Scale talk about how they can multi-purpose their plants. It might not be all power. It might be some steam and things like that. So realistically, put your salesman hat on. Do you think there will be these New Scale plants with multiple SMRs where maybe one's making electricity and one's making hydrogen and one's making district heating, for instance? Okay, well, I'm an engineer, but I'm not sure I can fake the sales part. I will make this analogy. Who remembers or has seen in history books the mainframe computers like the IBM, the really old IBM, the computers that were used for NASA, right? Now, you look around and you have your tablets or you have a laptop. In the past, when anybody said, well, can you use these mainframe? Can you put a microphone and record or play a movie? Probably everybody would say, I don't think so. These are meant to compute numbers. And now you use your laptops for everything. So imagine you have a new scale plant with, let's say, 12 modules. And each plant has a slot where you can put the modules. That opens the possibility to connect it to anything you want around, either electric or provide heat. Imagine you have pipe that is on the ground, neatly isolated with good materials, and then you can bring that process heat to a plant that is sitting next to it. Presently, all the petrochemical plants use tremendous amount of fossil fuel to do all the processes. Well, we have that heat. So the answer is yes, Jay. You can devote any modules to produce heat or electric power or both. And you have a lot of flexibility because each one has its own generator. So yeah, you can use some of them for hydrogen, some of them for direct air capture. I don't know if you're familiar with carbon capture from air. So that uses a lot of electricity. So you can use another one for that. You can use another one for desalination. Desalination is carbon intensive. Yeah, you can use it for a lot of different purposes. Yeah, so you can. The answer is yes. I put my salesman hat and I answer more. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you, Luis. Jonathan, Asa Delsa is probably the most high profile green energy project there is out there. I appreciate you talking about it. And I think that people in their imaginations think, oh, we can use hydrogen for anything, you know. But really, what are the use cases? You mentioned maybe some seasonal storage, right? Why do we think we're building these facilities right now in the early days? (laughs) Well, good question, Jay, because it certainly does not make economic sense. But I'm not going to judge what the folks of Southern California deem to be economically sensible. (laughs) What I will say, though, is that they have very stringent net zero carbon emission goals, probably some of the most stringent in the country. And if they don't start building hydrogen energy storage today, they ain't going to get there by 2035, I think. The off-taker of the electrons that are produced using the hydrogen from ACES are being wired, I guess, to the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, LADWP. Very important client for Black & Beach. Excellent developer. Very great foresight. But 
I would imagine you're talking something an order of magnitude higher on a dollar per megawatt hour basis than what most of the rest of us, especially here in Kakalaki, are paying for energy. And there's a couple reasons for that. So part of that obviously is you're paying not only for the electrons, you're paying for the energy storage itself, right? So there's a premium there because you got all these electrons flowing in and then converting to hydrogen and then being stored underground and then eventually being used to produce power again. Not the most efficient scheme, as I'm sure some of y'all engineer types can imagine. But that's not the point. The point of hydrogen energy storage is not to be a battery. I know I use that as an analogy, but that's not the point of long duration energy storage as a field, right? Because hydrogen ultimately is a secondary energy resource. It's an energy carrier. And what we're doing with many green hydrogen applications is we're taking an abundance, like I said, and shifting it to another. So think of it in terms of how you might think about a pumped hydro energy storage plant, right? We got these two reservoirs and during times where we got cheap electricity, we can pump it up the hill and then we can bring it back down the hill when electricity is higher priced. Same exact principle here is just storing it in an underground cavern rather than in two reservoirs. And it's actually pretty cheap. When you're talking about very long duration, very high power types of energy storage applications, hydrogen energy storage is pretty hard to beat. You ain't going to gang up 300 gigawatt hours of lithium ion batteries. Ain't going to happen. There ain't enough lithium in the world to do all our cars and our phones at the same time. Spoiler alert. I've seen um, that firsthand, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a good point. All right, I'm going to shut up. Audience, let's go. Go ahead. So my question is about using fossil fuels as a heat trap for hydrogen. You can use steam methane reclamation in conjunction with carbon capture storage. But at that point, isn't it more economic to just use your natural gas as is and then add the carbon capture on after that? Let me make sure I break your question down. I think just basically about the use of fossil fuels, then you can layer it on, I think, what I would call blue hydrogen, which is capturing the emissions from an SMR and then coming to cost. So about 95% of the method today is steam methane reforming, and that's where you're taking natural gas. You're going to react it and then use water and do a water gas shift and, and get your hydrogen out. That produces about between 9 and 11 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen you produce. So a lot of high emissions there. Your question around capturing the CO2, first, you got to capture it. So there's two parts from an SMR. There's the process gas and then there's the flue gas where it actually is heated up. Your process gas is a high amount of CO2 within the gas, a very high purity. That's easy to separate, that CO2. The flue gas is a combustion product, and that's a lower CO2 content. It's basically more expensive, as well, I'm telling you. And that's about like 70, 30 percentage of those process emissions. Depending on what level you want to reach on your carbon intensity reduction, there's a cost factor there. And then you still got to pump it somewhere and put it underground, and then it's got to stay underground for hundreds of years. So you have to have a geological, some salt cavern, somewhere you're putting it. There's regions of the world where cost doesn't matter. You just don't have that option. There are papers out there about taking natural gas from Australia, bringing it to Japan, using it, and then shipping the CO2 back in the same boat to Australia to be disposed. And you can imagine the logistics <laughs> and supply chains with that. And then you said more expensive. So I wouldn't agree with that statement around paralysis. More so I totally agree. Why would you not just directly take your solar panel and directly decarbonize something in steady state? You're doing an ASIS, which is time shift, put it into storage and shift it the use in time, or use it as an energy vector, nothing John brought up, which is ship that to another location to be used. I also think the first deployments in hydrogen and clean hydrogen will come not so much on the energy sector, but in the chemical sector, where there's a huge demand, and I usually say using hydrogen as a 
chemical rather than as heat, is a much better value proposition and much higher demand today. And then over time, the energy sector will be more attractive, but you still have to deal with that efficiency and time shift or geology shift. Great question. Natural gas burns just fine, right? Yeah. <laughs> as professionals who live this every day, you know why hydrogen is the right solution, but it's always easy when making the case to clients or the public, or as I like to say, when you're at dinner with friends and you're explaining what you do and these people don't live this every day. What have been the biggest misconceptions about how you've worked to change hearts and minds about hydrogen? I have seen electrical engineers. I know one very skeptical. Anything that has to do with hydrogen, for some reason, this particular colleague hears hydrogen and immediately is a no. And when I ask, tell me, tell me why you don't like hydrogen? His mindset is the following, which actually I don't blame. You're taking electricity to make hydrogen. The electricity is coming from coal or a gas-fired power plant. You're putting all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then you think that that hydrogen is clean. I think that's a big misconception because when we talk about green hydrogen or generation of carbon black or carbon capture, by the way, all the methods are good. Whenever they tell me which one is your favorite, I say all. We need all and more. For hydrogen to be clean, you need to use a clean source to produce it or capture the carbon dioxide or capture the carbon and do something with it. But that is not very simple to explain. That's a big misconception. Yeah. Any questions? How do you transport hydrogen? If you're going to produce it from the plant and then transport it around, does it have to be pressed or transported at a lower temperature? You can compress it. Typically, it's 350 bars or 700 bars that is just compressed hydrogen but it's not liquefied or you can put much higher pressure and lower the temperature and then it gets liquefied and that's about 70 times more compact than if you just compress it but that requires a tank that is isolated to keep the temperature cool it is not as simple but if you are going to store it or transport it the most efficient way to do it is liquefy it so you need to have a compressor. So when you talk about hydrogen as a range extender for an electric power plant, is it transported the same way? In other words, if you're going to put you know, like a hydrogen tank on a, like a heavy goods vehicle or something like that to extend the range, is that compressed? Yes, and they have made new tanks that are made out of fiber that are pretty light. And the hydrogen is light itself. It's just bulky. But if you compare a battery versus, let's say, hydrogen, and a fuel cell. Fuel cell weighs about 50 kilograms and a battery in a car is much heavier and the range is limited. So if you wanted to extend the range in a car, you will reach the point where the weight of the battery would reduce the range. You have a point of diminishing returns. With hydrogen, you can do that very easily. I would say hydrogen is probably easier to use for big trucks or maybe a train where you have a lot of space, you have a massive engine, but there are cars already with hydrogen, but then you get into other issues of how to refuel and whatnot. Yeah, just two points to add. One, every fuel cell electric vehicle is a hybrid vehicle, includes battery and a fuel cell. The vast majority of what's out there today is, as Louise mentioned, compressed storage and composite tanks in that 350 to 700 bar range, but there is quite a bit of interest, as he mentioned, as well for heavy-duty vehicles specifically. I'm looking at subcool cryogenic liquid. Lots of great R&D. My TRL chart, you're talking late stages of pilot testing. Trying to figure out how we're going to pump negative 250 Celsius hydrogen, as flammable as it is and as low a temperature as that is. Are there fuel cells out there in vehicles today? Well, the subcooled liquid specifically. Yeah, but there are fuel cell vehicles. I drove one first time back in 2004. Some of the fuel cells went to the moon with the Apollo mission. 
emissions and so on. Fuel cell technology has existed for quite some time. We're coming to the end of our time. And, you know, one of the things I always love to do in these kinds of conferences is because most of the time it's professional, if you've seen it all. But these folks are at the very beginnings of what hopes to be a promising career. All of us basically have one foot in the grave. So for <laughs> all these folks out here and they're interested in hydrogen, they want to get in the space and not everyone comes from a STEM background. We've got a lot of policy folks here. What do you think they need to focus on if they want to get into the energy sector? Just let's go down the panel. I would say there is so many areas. I would not get boxed into one and be super specialized. I think there's so many opportunities that uh, regardless of which field you are studying, look at either renewables or energy or policy because it's a fact that is happening and it will be in your time. Don't worry too much. I think mine will be similar. I would say in your first jobs, get your hands dirty, get out there, touch it, see it. About 11 years ago, moved from DC to San Francisco with the hopes of getting into clean tech startups. And when I got there, I was told clean tech's a pretty bad word to use these days. And that was about 11 years ago. And here I am at a clean tech conference today. And so I really wanted to get into concentrating solar power plants at the time. But what I didn't know was that solar PVs were coming down the cost curve and were about to undercut that entire market segment. And so I found my way into hydrogen uh, eventually. So I would say be open, be flexible for things changing. I mean, hydrogen, I think will have a very clear foothold, but there'll be other needs and other areas to watch out for. But that first job, pick something that's really going to get your hands dirty, get into the depths and understand how to make things really deploy for real. I dabbled in CSP too, and it was the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what can I add to that? I guess, especially a bio rep, don't hesitate from seeing the trees for the forest. Don't feel like you need to be an expert in everything you encounter in your career. Knowing a little about a lot and being able to see it from a bird's eye view is actually pretty invaluable. A little bit of tech, a little bit of economics, a little bit of policy. Don't be afraid to dabble. And the other lesson is you got to network to get work. So make sure to come up and meet these folks, get a business card, hold it up, Jonathan. You got you to stack. <laughs> so be sure to come talk to us and everything. I want to thank everybody for their time. Jonathan, Luis, Chris, it was a great panel on hydrogen. I'm Jay Downhower. Thank you so much for coming to the Many Colors of Hydrogen. Thank you so much. That was Jonathan Cristiani, Louis DePavia, and Christmas Robian, part of my hydrogen panel from UNC Cleantech in Chapel Hill. I want to thank all my panelists for their time, as well as Kirsten Williams and Greg Ganji at UNC for giving us the opportunity to present. You can find plenty of pictures and the presentations for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Str- Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 165. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how algae may hold the secrets to a sustainable future for biofuels. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.